Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Um, my name is Taylor Leachman, uh, the planting pastor here at Advent, and uh, it'll be uh, wonderful to do kind of hot yoga together without our HVAC uh, working. I've, I don't know. I've never done hot yoga. Um, so I, I just always thought that was a hilarious idea of sweating and stretching and whatnot. But, um, uh, you know, um, I, I wanted to say it before I got going that um, it is a great pleasure to pray how we just did every month. Um, you know, we, do, we, we typically do uh, a prayers of the people that style about once a month. And what I love about it is that we can pray both broadly and very specifically. And so when, you know, particularly for today, and I don't mean to, uh, to you know, to, to kind of make anyone feel awkward, but when, when there's very particular um, uh, prayers that are mentioned that perhaps most of us aren't actually aware of what's going on. Um, it is a privilege to join uh, our voices together with theirs to pray uh, together as Christ Church. Um, and, uh, and so, it's, it's, anyways, it's one of my favorite things that we do here at Advent. And um, I just wanted to fill you in on why I think it's so wonderful that we do it. Um, so, uh, as, you know, for those of y'all who've been here, maybe this is your first time uh, here at Advent in a while. We have been going through a sermon series where we're opening the very beginning of the Bible, uh, the book called Genesis, which means the beginnings. Um, and, uh, and so we've, uh, we've been reading about how God created the world, right? We've read uh, that he created it, that he declared it was good when he created it. Um, that he created man and woman in his image, and he gave them a particular, uh, you know, mandate or um, sort of a command to go to uh, to have dominion over the rest of creation, to be fruitful and to multiply and to rule on his behalf over the rest of creation. Right? But then we found out that. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, wanted to be like God, right? They weren't cool with ruling on his behalf. They wanted, they wanted to rule on their own behalf, right? That is the nature of what we call sin, right? It's the, the, the lack of wanting to do what God says and the lack of wanting to be what God calls us to be, right? Um, and so we see that each subsequent generation after Adam and Eve seemed to descend further and further into that sin pattern, right? Where violence begins to erupt more and more, right? And it says at the very beginning of, of Genesis chapter 6, which is sort of uh, the beginning of the story of Noah, which is where we are right now, right? That God saw that the intentions of their heart was evil only, Right? And then we see, as the last couple of weeks talk about, that God, in his justice, declared that he was going to wipe out the rest of creation with a flood. Right? As the Bible says, the wages of sin, that kind of rebellion of heart, the wages of sin is death. So he was going to send a flood to wipe out um, God's, to wipe out the, uh, the creation and to start over. But he decided to show Noah favor. 
um, Noah, not only Noah, actually Noah and his family. And they were told to build an ark uh, and to gather the animals. And God sent the rains and, and flooded the earth. Yet Noah, his family, and the animals who went into the ark two by two right, are, are safe. Right? And that's where our story picks up. Um, and while there's a lot of things that we could focus on in the passage today, uh, it's a huge passage. And actually, I, I uh, confess to you, I felt overwhelmed by it um, because of the different parts of it that we're not focusing on. Um, there's one aspect that I do want to focus on, and that is the concept of the covenant that God makes at the end of our passage. But in order to do that, before we read it, I actually want to talk briefly about what a covenant actually is, um, what it is from the biblical perspective, because we don't really use the word covenant very often. The closest thing that we use with regularity is maybe uh, a contract, right? But, but a contract is between kind of two even parties where there's you know, a little bit of stipulations here or there, where there's a, 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 if there's a, a breaking of the contract. Um, you know, there's sort of a minor penalty. You know, you pay a fee or, uh, or something along those lines. But a covenant is an agreement between two very unequal parties, right? In the Bible, it is always an agreement between God and his creation, his creatures, right? These are very unequal parties. It is creator, creature, and there is a massive distinction between the two. And throughout the Bible, there are these sort of stipulations um, for keeping the covenant, and there's these consequences for breaking them, right? So if you keep these covenants, this is what's going to happen to you in, in a positive sense, but if you break it, this is what's going to happen in a negative sense, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the best examples of, of where we see the covenant is when God makes a covenant with uh, one of the, the kind of the, the fathers of the faith, Abraham. Um, some of y'all may not be familiar with the story of Abraham, but God calls a man, Abraham, out of Canaan, out of a place that was worshiping the, a moon god at that point in time. And he says, you know what? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you and the descendants after you a blessing unto the nations. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you progeny. And y'all are going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Right? And so when God makes that covenant with Abraham, he puts Abraham to sleep, and Abraham has a dream. And in that dream, there's a bunch of cut-up animals, and there's a, 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 a torch and a smoking pot that passes through those animals. Right? And the idea here is that those who break the covenant, right, that promise, will be like the animals cut in two. Right? But... In this particular case, there's something amazing that's going on here, right? As the covenant was really only possible to be kept or broken by God, right? There wasn't really anything that Abraham brought to the table here. There's only one person that passed through the animals. In the dream, the torch and the smoking pot represented the Lord, right? And so he is saying, may I be like these animals if I do not keep my promises to you? That is what a covenant is. It is God in his great mercies, though he is far superior to us, promising to, uh, to bless, to keep, um, and may he be like the animals if he breaks the covenant, so to speak, right? 
So with that in mind, we're going to read our passage uh, together, and sort of like we did last week, I'm going to be skipping some parts of the story, um, and I would urge you to read it on your own. Um, it is not because we want to, to skip it because it's hard to talk about or something along those lines, but it's because we're more focusing on the covenant aspect of the story here. So uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 8, uh, 13, and then you know, I will try and keep you updated if you're reading along in your pew Bible. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. To verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives, with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Excuse me. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. To chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. To verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Uh, Father, we, uh, we pray and give you thanks for your word. Lord, that you reveal to us... Um, who you are, your purposes for the world, and, and how we are to respond uh, to you, uh, to your grace, and to your love. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus, the Word made flesh. Amen. Um, well, a couple of weeks ago, my family and I uh, were watching Apple Plus, and we put on what we thought, you know, uh, not what we thought, it, it was a good family movie uh, called Wolf Walker. I don't know how many of y'all have seen uh, that movie, um, but it's, it's sort of the story um, set in Ireland 
sometime in the late medieval period about a father who is uh, kind of a hunter and a warrior uh, who's moved from England to go and to serve this small town in Ireland that is being beset by wild wolves. It's taking over and, uh, you know, and, and being overrun by them. And the hunter was responsible to kill them for the sake of, kind of dominion and cultivation and, uh, and human progress. And throughout the movie, uh, the wild, kind of untamed wolves are depicted as the free and the flourishing Right? And, and, um, and the humans, you know, particularly the, the Lord Protector, who's out of the, the person in charge of the town, is depicted as being shackled. Um, and they live in a town behind walls and, and barred gates, and they're subject to a curfew to protect them from the wolves. Right? Um, in particular, the Lord Commander uses Christian beliefs to subjugate and to destroy the wilderness all around. Um, he's frequently depicted in, play, in prayer saying, you know, God, b- bless my destruction of the wolves in the wilderness, which he emphatically states over and over again is God's will. Um, and now I don't bring this up to say, you know, it's another example, of just another anti-Christian bias from a movie. Um, it, was, it was a good movie, and certainly that I don't think it depicted what we would accurately, uh, you know, say is a Christian understanding. Um, but I say this rather to say that it conveys what a lot of people, and that is uh, what a lot of people believe. That is that the Christianity teaches a human domination of the environment. Um, in a famous article called "The Historic Root of Our Ecological Crisis," written by a guy named Lynn White Jr. in 1967, he essentially makes this very claim. Uh, he argues that human ecology is deeply conditioned by the beliefs uh, of our nature and our destiny, meaning by religion. He goes on to say that Christianity, in absolute contrast to ancient paganism and Asia's religions, not only established a dualism of, of man and nature, but also insisted that it is God's will that man exploit the nature for his proper ends. In the context of a pagan society, Right before one cut a tree or mined a mountain or dammed a brook, it was important to placate the spirit in charge of the particular situation and to keep it placated. Right? By destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. Um, now, what he's essentially saying here is that by no longer having kind of a pagan belief that God is present in the created things, we don't need to placate those things in order to do with them whatever we will, right? That's essentially his argument here. But he further, uh, he further argues that because a Christian sees the citizenship in heaven, then the purpose of the rest of creation is to fulfill mankind's purposes, Um, As the crowning achievement of creation, um, everything else is meant to serve us. That's the essence of a Christian's teaching about the created order, at least according um, to to Lynn White. And that really famous article actually uh, uh, prompted a ton of phenomenal Christian writing back to it by people like Francis Schaeffer and some of the other uh, really prominent and good Christian thinkers of the 1960s and 70s. 
My point is, I think it's fair to question some of what White believes that Christians believe. Um, and as I said, in fact, that's what a lot of people did in response. Um, but there's something that has happened over the course of that period and now about a Christian's understanding of how we are to engage with the rest of God's created order. Because some in 1971, this was an unbelievable statistic to me. Um, according to an internal poll by the Southern Baptist Convention, 81% of pastors and 76% of Sunday school teachers who were surveyed believe that churches should lead efforts to solve air and water pollution problems. In 1971, over uh, four-fifths of pastors and three-quarters of Southern Baptist leaders believed that they needed to be doing that. But something happened in the 1980s in American Christianity to change the prevailing Christian response toward the rest of the environment. Many Christian public leaders began you know, to kind of openly uh, you know, question environmental issues and, and mock environmental concerns. And while it's impossible to know what any given leader's motivation was, um, most Christian arguments for not thinking about caring for the environment come from one of three ways of thinking. First, partisan politics, right? That somewhere along the way where Christians were rightly concerned about, you know, uh, the right to life, um, or were rightly concerned about a biblical sexual ethic being for human flourishing, that somehow it became a thing that if you were pro-life, you recognize, well, you're a Republican. And if you uh, were an environmentalist, you were a Democrat. And those two are not allowed to, uh, to exist together, right? And so, unfortunately, there's a wide, wide swath of Christians that began to believe that it was antithetical to be both pro-life and pro-environment. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's this. I actually think it's probably a little bit more of the second one. And that is that it's because of American wealth, right? That most of the biggest environmental issues don't hit us as Americans as much as they do the rest of the world, right? Our trash is taken elsewhere. We just like roll our carts down to the, to, you know, to the front and that trash ends up somewhere else. Right? We don't have to think about it. Or y'all have heard about the plastic continent that is floating in the ocean. Um, you know, that's out of sight, out of mind. We don't have to think about it. Or we can pay for timber from other parts of the world, so they're the ones that end up with mudslides, not us. And we end up with beautiful furniture. Or it's third, our theology. Kind of what we've mentioned above, the belief that because we're citizens of heaven... The earth is passing away, and God has no plan for the rest of his creation. We don't need to care about it because God doesn't care about it, is essentially the way that the theology actually goes. Many of these lines of thinking have contributed to our lack of concern about God's world. But as we look more and more at our passage today, I want for us to be challenged by what we actually see in the scriptures. God cares deeply about and for his creation. The Noah story itself is an incredible pattern. And in pattern, a pattern of uncreation to recreation to covenant promise. All right? and, and so you know, rather than do kind of a three-point um, sermon, we're going to talk about that pattern 
And then we're going to apply it together. So that uncreation, recreation, covenant promise. And then we're going to talk about why it actually matters as we apply it together. So, um, you know, if we open our Bibles to the very beginning, Genesis 1, uh, verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right? At the very beginning of creation, there is water. Right? And that water is meant to represent sort of uncreated and uncontrolled chaos. Right? It's in this unruly uh, state God creates by controlling the waters, by making beauty where there was distress, by making beauty where there was disorder. Um, he separates the waters from the waters. He brings forth the land out of the waters, and he makes life in the oceans and on land and in the air, right? And so God brings judgment against Noah's generation and against the world, and his judgment is this uncreation of sorts, right? It is like God sort of taking the clay with which he used to mold into a, a, a pot here uh, into something beautiful and saying, you know what, this didn't work out. I'm just going to kind of mold it back together again, right? The judgment is like a starting over. It is an uncreation. Because the waters come down. They come from down below. They come from up above. And it covers everything over the face of the earth. And it's like a Genesis 1 verse 2 situation again, right? And Noah and his family, the animals, two by two in the ark, they have been spared here. And if we come then to the beginning of our passage in chapter 8 verse 13 we see that after 150 days, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, and the face was, uh, sorry, and the face of the ground was dry. So God is telling, uh, God is again telling the waters to go over here. Right? He's separating them from the rest of the world. He's recreating what was uncreated. Right? Um, God begins to use, and in fact, we actually see um, a repeat of a lot of the same language that we saw in Genesis chapter 1. Right? It says that, it, uh, that, that Noah here takes all of the animals out of the ark, and he does so according to their kinds. Right? And as they leave the ark, he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. In essence, he's giving Noah the same charge and purpose that he gave to Adam. Right? As God's image bearers, which is what we were uh, created to be in Adam and Eve, uh, he's to govern, shepherd, steward the rest of God's creation on God's behalf. That is what it means to image him. Right, well, a lot of, we talked about this um, sometime, I think, in maybe September, that we have uh, maybe a misguided notion of what it means to image God. A lot of times we think it's a sort of shared characteristics with him. Um, and it's not not that, right? but it's bigger than that. Right? To image God is more of a verb than it is a noun or an adjective of what we have or who we are. Um, to image God 
means that we are actually his representatives of the reign and rule of the Lord on the rest of the creation. So, you know, that, that was a lot of words. Here's what it means, right? When a king sent messengers into the world, he would send them with his image, right? With an image depiction of the king. Why would he do that? Well, it was to represent that that messenger carried the same authority of the king speaking himself. That is who we are. We are the representation of God's authority on the earth. That is man's purpose, to image him. And in imaging God, Noah and his family are to have dominion over the rest of creation. And we see that dominion in Noah and his family in caring for the animals and bringing them back off of the ark. Right? And they were exercising that authority that was given to them by God. Right? And so now it says they're supposed to fill the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply, just as Adam and Eve were before them, to serve God by serving his world. Right? And it's into that pattern that comes the covenant. As we continue in our passage toward the end of the passage in verse 9, um, it says, Behold, I, being God here, will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. <coughs> There's a lot going on here. Um, but one of the amazing aspects of this covenant in particular is that God is not just establishing a covenant here with Noah, with people, right? But he is establishing it with Noah's offspring and he's establishing it with every living creature. He's promising not just to never wipe out humanity and start over, but also to never wipe out the rest of creation. This judgment on the world, though just, doesn't do anything to fix the problem of human character, of human sin, right? God has cast judgment against sin, right? He doesn't, but he doesn't want to just judge it any longer. He wants to deal with it. He wants to put sin to death. And so we actually will find throughout the rest of scriptures that God's plan of redemption is that it is the plan to deal with sin and death. And here he is promising never again to wipe it all out until it has been dealt with, right? This judgment on the world, right? Uh, so so um, the judgment upon the world here did not deal with sin because though Noah was righteous in his generation, he was not righteous, Right? He was righteous in comparison to the rest of his generation, as we talked about before. Right? And not only that, but we find out here in the next few verses, we'll find this out next week, that his family is not righteous. Right? And the problem of sin goes forth. So as God's plan of redemption is enacted, he promises that until he has completed his plan of redemption, he will be long-suffering. He will be patient Right? And he will not judge us in full until the fullness of time. And he will not wipe out his creation until 
that point in time when he brings a new heavens and a new earth. And he is promising to keep and to care for his creation. And that his plan of redemption actually includes creation. In the passages that were read earlier, it says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ, who sits now as the king of heaven and earth. That redemption takes all of that into account. Jesus himself is the firstborn of creation. He is the plan of what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? And the Apostle Paul, in a letter to the Romans, says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Right? The Lord will release creation from its bondage, the bondage of the curse of sin that's brought about by our sin. And God's redemption does not just include us. It does, and praise the Lord that it does, but it also includes the rest of his creation. That is what Paul is talking about here. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we too ought to care about God's creation. Right? As his people, we ought not to care less about something that he cares for. Um, right? We're to steward it well. Not using it for our own ends, trying to to kind of get every ounce out of it that we can before we go off into another world, as perhaps some people would say is true of our theology. Nor ought we to fall into the trap of environmentalism either. Environmentalism being that kind of quasi-religious belief that we're not supposed to ever touch creation. No, actually, again, God gave us the, 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 the dominion to, to do it as, um, uh, to have authority over his creation, but not as we see fit, but as he sees fit, right? Um, I often think about kind of environmentalism in this way. We, when we lived in Austin, we had a neighbor um, who, I, I'm pretty sure this was more laziness than it was uh, any, you know, particular desire from his heart. But he put up a, a, you know, a sign that was made out of one of these papers, you know, something like this, with big Sharpie that said, this is a natural habitat, and put it up in his lawn so that he never had to do anything for his yard or his lawn, right? Environmentalism, in, in essence, is like, well, the creation on its own, without any human interference or any human dominion, is better. Well, that's not what we believe either. So what it means here is that we're to make wise and selfless choices. Perhaps by choosing, you know, for example, to use less disposable wear, um, even though it's less efficient. Maybe it's by choosing to consume less, less food, less materials, buy less things on Amazon, whatever it is, trying to see the good and fruitfulness in all that God has given to us that we don't need more. And definitely, it's in recognizing that as, a, as Christians, it is right and good to care about the environment, right? as it is a part of God's created order. And while it might be tempting for this sermon to so heavily focus on the application of you know, being green or something along those lines, that is not at all where I want to leave us. Right? And, and perhaps that's, that's what it felt like from the very beginning. Um, though we ought to take care of God's world, the point is that we frequently do not. 
where God in his goodness gives us a role to have dominion and authority, we are a faithless bunch. And God's covenantal promises come over and over again to a faithless bunch. He is a faithful God toward a faithless bunch. He is a covenant-keeping God to a covenant-breaking people. And so my point is that, yes, we ought to repent where we have cared little about God's world, but it is also that we are to recognize God's faithfulness in all of this. Because God in his grace doesn't just make promises to us, but he gives us signs of those promises. And that is what we see here at the end of Genesis chapter 9. The rainbow here isn't just some sort of beautiful aspect of refracted light that we're supposed to look at. You know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. I don't know if y'all sing that song. Um, It's God's promises to his people. That is what the rainbow is. And in fact, the word rainbow here is not actually used. In Hebrew, there is no word for rainbow. Um, The word that's being used here is a war bow. So God, his sign to his people is that never again will he ever break out his war bow toward us or toward his creation any longer. He has hung his war bow up in the clouds, in the sky, and never again is he bringing it back out until his plan of redemption is accomplished. He is a God who is faithful. And he is a God who, through his covenant keeping, is taking uncreation and sin, and he's making it right and new again. And he promises that that is the pattern of our lives, and that is the pattern of Scripture. And so let me conclude with this thought. Um, You know, I never want for a sermon to feel like or sound like a moralistic lecture. Um, You better care for the environment. That's that's not what I'm saying. Um, Every sermon needs to call us back to the biblical order. Because we live um, throughout the week um, with the wrong order of things. We think that because of our initiative, because of how we go about doing things, that that, that, that means, you know, if I'm doing good, uh, you know, then people will love me. Then people will pay attention to me. That is not the biblical order of things. The biblical order always begins with God. And so if I can, I'm going to draw y'all's attention to the reflection quotes by Sinclair Ferguson here. Ferguson says, He, being God, does not love us if we love Him. He loves us with an unconditional love. Therefore, we should love Him. The message of the covenant is one of God's totally free grace to His people. Of course, it calls for a response of total commitment. But notice the order. God's covenant love is not the result of our commitment. It is the cause of it. The pattern is, I will, therefore you should. Not I will, but only if you will first. God establishes this covenant out of his own grace, out of his own goodness. And that is his pattern toward you and toward me as he sends Christ to a faithless people to make us faithful. Not, if you will be faithful, therefore I will send you the love of Jesus Christ. But because of Jesus, he is accomplishing his full plan of redemption, which is for faithless people like you and me, and it is for all of his creation. And that is our motivation.
That is our motivation to respond. And so may we pray unto that end. Father, we thank you for your love and mercy for us. We thank you for the love of Jesus Christ and what he is doing um, in his redemption of all things. And so, Father, I pray that we would respond recognizing that all things in this world are yours and that we would, um, we would care for it, not because uh, we're trying to earn your favor, but because we know that in Christ we already have it. And so we pray all of this in his name. Amen.